0: Way too often, even though there's lots of preparation for war and violence, there is little done to prepare to create peaceful outcomes. Fortunately, Parfait Ntuhuba led a concerted effort in Burundi so that the 2020 national elections might have a much better outcome than the bloody results of the 2015 election. Having lived through the 1994 civil war in Burundi, in which her father and 300,000 others were killed, and having learned from the trauma healing workshops and nonviolent resistance training she has received, Parfait has become a peace and women's rights activist in the East African nation while serving as one of a handful of women pastors in Burundi. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. Also, there is an uncut version of this interview with 11-plus more minutes on northernspiritradio.org. Parfait Nutuba joins us from Madison, Wisconsin by Zoom as she tours the USA. Parfait, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Are you enjoying it here, or would you really rather be back with your family back in Burundi?
1: (laughs) Thank you for the question i really enjoying this new place, yeah, because I'm learning a lot from different people. And at the same time, I'm missing my family. <laughs> 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 I miss my husband and my kids. That's in one week, I'll be back there.
0: How old is your youngest? 11. That's a long time to be away for more than a month with an 11-year-old. Yes. You've been traveling around. Which big cities have you hit so far? How many have you been to on this trip?
1: I ha- have been in Maryland, Baltimore. I have been in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania State. I have been in uh, Minneapolis, I have been in um, here in Madison, Wisconsin. I have been in Washington, D.C. I don't know if Washington, D.C. is another state. I don't know.
0: It's not a state, but it is a separate place, yes.
1: Yeah, I have been in Washington, D.C., and uh, from tomorrow I will be in California, in Los Angeles.
0: A lot of traveling, a lot of things to do, but it's important, the message that you're carrying. Why did you come here? I mean, what's the important message that you want people in the United States to have heard from your visit here, Parfait?
1: The main message I have brought here is that women can come together and respond to questions in different communities, and also that both trauma healing workshops and women's economic empowerment are very key for gender-based violence prevention.
0: Let's get into some of your history, because it's very important to your whole training, how you got involved with peace work. I don't think, as you grew up as a Catholic, that you were trained in peace work, or maybe you did learn some. Catholic Church sometimes does some very good things about peace. Did you learn any of it while you were growing up?
1: I don't think so. I don't think that when I was Catholic that I was trained about peace. But what I know is among the Ten Commandments, what I learned from Catholic, where we ask God to forgive us as we have forgiven others, this was was somehow a piece of
0: peace. You got very involved with Peace Work Following. How did that happen? What changed in your life? And I part of it was, I think it happened around the time you were 19, when the genocide happened. It happened in Rwanda, the genocide. It happened in Burundi at the same time, didn't it?
1: Yeah, in Burundi, it was a civil war. They are still now struggling. They have not agreed that it was a genocide because they were killing each other, the two main ethnic groups, Tutsis and the Hutus.
0: So there was fighting there, but it wasn't the same unbalanced genocide?
1: They were killing, yeah. Before, for instance, today there was a Hutu was killed. The following day, a Tutsi was killed.
0: Did that happen in your family too?
1: Of course, yes. My father was killed. Our first president, who was elected democratically, was killed on October 21st, and my father was killed on November 13th. We didn't get a chance to bury him. We heard that he was killed by some people with stones, but we didn't bury him, yeah. We heard that he was killed only.
0: I think in Rwanda, over the course of three months or something, I think they say 750,000 people were killed. Was there that much killing in Burundi as well?
1: I don't remember the exact number of people who were killed, but what I know is that many people were killed, and others became
0: refugees. Did that have some effect that... It got you involved in peace work. How did you get involved in peace work?
1: I grew up in a Catholic family, in a family where there was domestic violence. My mother was often beaten by my father. My mother was abused, and most of the time she was sent back to her parents And uh, what was painful was that my mother, most of the time, she was often injured by my father and went back to her parents. And after two or three days, I have seen my mother coming back to ask for forgiveness while she was the one who was injured, coming back with maybe some beer to ask for forgiveness. As a child, it has touched my heart. I was... Seeing my mom as someone who was living as a slave, it was not easy because I think that it has even traumatized me since my childhood because I remember the most painful moment when my mother was sent back to her parents for a period of six months. And I was seven years old. We were five kids in our family. I was also going to school and I was the third child in the family, but the first born daughter in my family. And in our culture, when the mother is not there, if you are the first born daughter, all her responsibilities, most of them, become yours. So that time, I remember that I suffered much, because I had to care for my little sister and my little brothers. My little sister was five years old, and my little brother was three years old. Coming back from school, I and my brother, who was eight years old, were working together to find water, to find firewood, and to prepare food. It was not easy. The first born, my brother who was the firstborn, was in charge of looking for goats that we had, we had in our family. He was bringing those goats after school in the forest to have some vegetables for the goats. And the eighth, the first one was nine, the second was eight, and we, I had seven years old. The second and me were working together. And as a daughter, I was uh, suffering much because in addition to preparing food, I had to make sure if my little sister and my little brother are doing well, if they don't need food, if they don't need to sleep. This is what uh, I have experienced as a child. And it was in 1994 when I joined the Quaker family because my father was killed at the beginning of the 12th Civil War in Burundi. After his death, our house was burnt, and it means that we had nowhere to live. That's why we fled from our home, looking for a safe shelter, and many people were refusing to receive us because we were a big family. I was together with my mother and the six children, meaning that we were running away as a family of seven people. And the many families refused to receive us because they were saying, you are a big family, we don't have enough rooms, we don't have food for you. But the Quaker family took the risk to receive us. That Quaker family... It was a family of 80 people, six children, the husband and the wife. And they took the risk to give us a safe shelter. They were so caring, they were very supportive. They were going to other Quaker families to take food from them, to bring to us, and even clothes. This touched my heart, particularly that it was in that Quaker family that I realized uh, he lived a different kind of life because there was no domestic violence there. The husband and the wife were supporting each other. They were so loving and so, so supporting. And it was since that time that I realized that life without domestic violence is possible. And it was since that time that I joined the Quaker family because of their peace testimony.
0: So all through your childhood, there was family violence, and she would go away. She would go to her parents' place, sometimes a short time, sometimes as long as six months, at which point, because you're the oldest girl, Uh you became responsible for the littler. But you do have two brothers who are older. Yes. You got some help, but mainly it was your work at the age of seven to take care of your little brothers and sisters. I'm sure this doesn't make any sense to most people who are listening in the United States. In the United States, it's not acceptable that a seven-year-old girl is responsible for little brothers and sisters. It's also it doesn't make any sense to most of us that children have to get their own food. The father should be bringing the food, of course. Is that the way in most families? Is your family different than other families in Burundi? Was your family different?
1: Most families in Burundi, the father is in charge. For instance, you have to, because my mother was not there, the responsibility of the father is to make sure he pays people who are going to farm because we were going to school, people who go uh, farming to do agriculture so that we can find food. And then it is our role, it was our role for us children to prepare the food. Most of families in Burundi, it is very rare. We cannot expect that the husband can go in the kitchen and prepare food. The husband cannot go to find water or firewood. It is not common in our culture. So that's why it was our own responsibility. I don't even believe how we're able to do that. Because sometimes for us in Burundi, we cook with uh, firewood. And for instance, for beans, to cook beans, it takes two hours. And I don't even remember how we were doing because sometimes when we were going at school, because we were going in the morning and afternoon, before we, we returned to school in the afternoon, we had to prepare the beans and then to ask the five-year kid to follow so that the beans are <laughs> well, well done. I cannot even believe how she was never burnt with fire. right It was a miracle. Yeah, because we thought that when we come back from school at 5 p.m., we cannot start by cooking beans and be able to eat at 7 or at 8 p.m.
0: Just to let you know, I actually understand a little bit more about this. I'm 68 years old. So when I was young, things were still different a bit in the United States, still not exactly what you have in Burundi. But the night that my mother died when I was nine years old, that night, my father did not come home My mother, she went drinking and she died. At home, we were seven kids, and the oldest of us was 10 years old. My sister, who's a year and a half older than I am, she was taking care of all of us down to my two-month-old brother. So I actually saw in my family something like what you're talking about, not as extreme, but that happened in my family too. I think now in the United States that would not happen the police, the government would get involved right away. So the children would not be left to take care of themselves.
1: Yeah, for us, it was very different because my two brothers, when we were, uh, had already eaten our dinner, they had to go to sleep. And for me, I, had, I could not sleep before my three-year brother sleeps. I had to make sure he sleeps. And if he doesn't sleep, I had to put him on my back until he sleeps. And sometimes I was afraid that he can wake up. I could go and sleep on my bed with my brother on my back. It was not
0: easy. It's incredibly hard work. So, folks, by the way, we're speaking with a special guest we have with us. She's in Madison right now. Madison, Wisconsin, visiting from Burundi. Parfait Tahuba. She's had many roles already in her life. She's a peacemaker, she's a woman's rights advocate, and she's a Quaker minister in Burundi. One of the most important things that we're going to get to as we speak with Parfait, and by the way, that name in English, it's a French name, means perfect. And so we have a perfect guest here with us today for Spirit in Action. She had an important role in the work that prevented violence happening around the 2020 presidential election in Burundi. Because she was trained and she helped train others in using unarmed civilian protection. We'll talk about that as we go on. Let's talk a little bit, Parfait, about how you got here. We've already mentioned, I think you were 19 when your father died in 1994. That's when a civil war is really happening in Burundi, and that's when the genocide is happening in your neighboring country, Rwanda. So you stayed with a Quaker family, you're raised Catholic. Was the Quaker family, were they Burundian?
1: Yes, they were Burundian.
0: Were there many Quakers in Burundi at that time?
1: I don't think so. I don't think they were not beyond the 12,000 Quakers. But today we are around 60,000 speakers in Burundi.
0: How big is the population of Burundi then or now? How many people?
1: Around 12 million people.
0: So this is a very small portion of the country, but you happened to connect with them and they helped take care of you. And you saw them not being violent in family. And this is important because I think I heard you say when I visited with you last Friday that maybe there are 90% of the families in Burundi have violence of men towards women. Did I make that number up or do I correctly remember that? Is it that common?
1: Domestic violence is very common in Burundi because at least 50% of women have experienced domestic violence. It means one woman out of two has experienced domestic violence. So domestic violence is very common in our Burundian culture. Since my childhood, I was against domestic violence. And that is why since my childhood, education was my priority for me because I was thinking that my mom was suffering because she was not able to be graduated from school, to have a diploma and be able to have some financial income. That's why I had taken education as a priority. And even the last week, I was talking with my mom, discussing about what happened. And she told me that, I think that your father was abusing me because I was poor.
0: So you made the decision not to be poor, not to be under the control of men who were...
1: Not to be... My mom, I saw her as if she was living as a slave. Can you imagine being beaten and you were even injured? And he doesn't take you at the hospital. And then the following day, you come back at home to ask for forgiveness. This was slavery. This is what I have understood. For me, I told it to myself, I don't want to live such kind of life, a life to live as a slave.
0: It sounds very hard. It sounds very challenging. Let's talk about violence in society. Because a, such an important role that you played in preventing violence in the election, this came out of unarmed civilian protection. Many people in the United States have no idea what that kind of civilian protection is. They think the only protection is police helping with a gun, or maybe you're protecting yourself. Unarmed civilian protection. Where did you learn about that, and how did you decide that that would be good in Burundi?
1: I'm the national coordinator of the Friends Women's Association, which is a member of Quaker Peace Network Burundi. And the Quaker Peace Network Burundi is a consortium of eight organizations, including two which are international and six which are local. In 2015, in Burundi, there was electoral violence. Many people fled the country. We had 300,000 people who became refugees because of the 2015 elections. And at the same time, I got an opportunity to do peace studies at Selkirk College in Castregal, British Columbia in Canada. And uh, when I was attending that training on peace studies, I learned that they had also another course, which is called Unarmed Civilian Protection. In 2017, I got an opportunity to be trained on Unarmed Civilian Protection. It was an online training for three months. And then in May, we went at Circle College for the second part, a face-to-face part for two weeks. And non-civilian protection, it is a methodology, it is an approach which is used to prevent violence or mitigate the impact of violence in uh, communities. Non-civilian protection principles are non-violence non-partisanship, primacy of local actors, independence, and the respect of human rights. Some of the strategies which are used are relationship building, proactive engagement, monitoring and capacity enhancement or recognition, because with unarmed civilian protection, we don't say uh, capacity building because the people already have their own capacities. We are there to help them to recognize the capacities that they already have. The skills of a uh, UCP are armed civilian protection. When I was there at Cir College, I realized that they they would be help us to prevent electoral violence and When I was there, we were given a list of organizations which are using UCP skills on the ground, and one of them was a nonviolent peace force and it was in twenty eighteen in March. When I was attending the 62nd UN Commission on the Status of Women, that I got an opportunity to meet Mel Denker, who is now the founding director of Nonviolent Peace Force was since that time that we got connected, and as I was interested in the UCP and armed civilian protection, uh, how it is used on the ground, I was invited by Nonviolent Peace Force to attend a workshop in Nairobi in November 2018. And uh, since that time, after that workshop, I realized that I cannot do much thing when I am alone, because at that time I was the only person from Burundi who was already trained on unarmed civilian protection. It was then after the workshop organized by Nanavarite Peace Force that, Selkek College from Canada, I started to contact them and fortunately they supported the Quaker Peace Network Burundi. They sent one of my teachers at Selkek College to come and to train 20 people from Queca Peace Network Burundi on unarmed civilian protection. And after the workshop, it was a 10 day intensive training on unarmed civilian protection. These people from Queca Peace Network Burundi said these skills can be helpful for us to prevent the 2020 electoral violence. And then, under the support of nonviolent peace force, a delegation of five people from the Quaker Peace Network Burundi was sent to South Sudan. For a field exposure to understand how UCP skills are used on the ground by nonviolent peace force. We spent 10 days in South Sudan. And when we came back in Juba, we received a training by a nonviolent peace force expert. They were two on every warning, every response. And it was since that time that we developed a proposal to prevent electoral violence during the twenty twenty elections in Burundi. Fortunately, we were supported by Nonviolent Peaceful coached as how we can have uh, organization to support our project. And then we were supported by an organization which is based here in the U.S., which is the Wellspring Philanthropic Fund, which is based in Washington, D.C. And then we were able to establish five Air Warning, Air Response teams In five different communities of Burundi, which had experienced the most high rate of violence during the 2015 elections. So, this is my journey of how I learned about UCP and how have been using uh, unarmed civilian protection in our country, in Burundi. And these early warning teams were made uh, members of these early warning response teams were coming from different uh, political parties. They were young people, both men and women, from different political parties, from different ethnic groups, from different religious background. Uh, they also included peace actors from different peace organizations, members of the Quaker Peace Network. And then these people worked together to prevent violence before, during, and after the 2020 elections in Burundi. And they have been effective because areas where our early warning Airy teams were based, eighty percent of people who were registered to vote were able to vote, and our early warning Airy response teams were doing what we call protective presence. It means if people in the community, if they were feeling threatened, people from the main opposition political party, they had to make sure that they are protected by visiting them in the morning, visiting them afternoon, even at the evening, so that they don't feel alone. This is what they will have been doing as protective presence. And this has helped those people not to flee their communities, and they stayed there until they voted on the day of elections. They have also been doing what we call a protective accompaniment, because I remember one guy from Chibitok province who was able to go to vote on the day of election, but our every warning response team accompanied him as a group of three people at the polling station, and he was able to vote. So, this was uh, some of the success as for, from our Air warning, Air sports teams, because they were able to work together from different backgrounds. And what made them very uh, successful was that we first ran a trauma healing workshop for 25, because they were a total of 125 people. And at the beginning, because they attend a training on early warning, early response, they had to, the 25 people were invited to attend a three day trauma healing workshop. And through the trauma healing workshop, they had opportunity to share their stories and they started crying together. And when they cried together, this was the beginning for them to understand that they are one person. They have the same feelings. They have the same emotions. And then it was through the trauma healing workshop that they accepted to attend together, even the workshop on every warning response and to work as a team. So, as the Quaker Peace Network Burundi, we have understood that trauma healing is very key in our Burundian context because Burundi has experienced the cycles of violence, including gender-based violence in different families. So, trauma healing is very key and the relationship building is very key for the success of an armed civilian protection approach. And also, it is very important that the members of every warning and response have different backgrounds so that they can work together and support each other.
0: Perfect. Nitahuba said a lot of things there, folks, and I'm going to drill down to some of the detail. But first, I wanted to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action Our website is northernspiritradio.org, northernspiritradio.org. And that's going to be important because when you want to follow up on this work that Parfait does and the Quaker Peace Network Burundi does, to find the links to those, you can come via our site. You'll find links there on the friendspeaceteams.org website to Burundi, the activism happening there. The FWA, Friends Women's Association, Burundi.com. Again, you're not necessarily going to remember that, or maybe you don't even know how to spell Burundi, but if you come via northernspiritradio.org, you'll find links. And there is so much good work they're doing there. They can use your support, of course. We also can use your support for Northern Spirit Radio. But one of the things you can do is come to our site and just post a comment, give your reaction. We want to connect you up with people who are making this world a better place people like Parfait and so come via our site post comments and maybe you know someone who's doing this work and let us know about that too Also, I want to give a shout-out to all of the community radio stations across the country doing such invaluable work. There are many radio stations which are owned centrally, and that's not the case with community radio stations. You go to those stations, you listen to the stations like the 35 to 45 of them who carry Norden Spirit Radio Programming, and you find local news, you find local music, you find local culture that you don't get elsewhere. So please, Remember to support them as well. Again, via the sites, friendspeaceteams.org or fwaburundi.com, you can find a way to support this work that Parfait and others are doing in Africa and other countries because the work that Mel Duncan, who again is one of the early inspirations and teachers for Parfait, the work that he has done, and I interviewed him 12 years ago. So if you search Mel Duncan on org, you'll find my interview with him. The Nonviolent Peace Force actually serves frequently at the request of folks in the United Nations. And so the work that Parfet referred to when she was on the ground training in South Sudan, that's under the aegis of the Nonviolent Peace Force. And remember that those letters, UCP, Unarmed Civilian Protection, the method of working which is effective, without people being beaten up, without people being killed. And when you've seen so much bloodshed, as has happened in a place like Burundi, it's so important to have other tools that people have been lacking up to this point. First of all, I wish you were all here to cheer for Parfait and for her co-workers for the amazing work they did. In this past election in Burundi, they had a totally different result than what happened in 2015 election. The amount of violence was vastly diminished because of the work of the Quaker Peace Network, The early warning, early response training and method that they're using, these are techniques that are, even in the United States, we seldom learn, and they are invaluable. So, Parfait, I want to come back to you in the election, the most, most recent election in Burundi. How significant was the reduction in violence? Was there no violence? Was there very little violence? How did it turn out?
1: There was a very low rate of violence. We didn't have internally displaced the people and the refugees after the 2020 elections. People, most of the time when there is violence, people flee the country. But after the 2020 elections, people stayed in their different communities Meaning that there was no violence during the 2020 elections. Although we can maybe, uh, we can have maybe some cases of violence, but in the communities where we had our early warning air response was the five communities, there was no violence which were reported because the 2015 elections were very painful. But in 2020, you can even maybe find a report I don't know if you can find a report about the 2020 election, there was no violence in Burundi.
0: How do you do this? I mean, As you said, the teams that were working to help the early warning, early response teams, the unarmed civilian protection, you said there are people of different religions, of different ethnic groups, people of all kinds of difference who would normally have been enemies, or maybe they could have been enemies. How did you bring them together? Was it just the trauma healing? They got to care for each other during the trauma healing workshops and therefore they could work together to prevent more trauma
1: yes it was through the trauma healing workshop those people were invited by Quaker Peace network 25 people and they didn't know who was invited they just found themselves in the same training room and they didn't know why they were there, and when they were introducing themselves, they were asked to say their name, what is their political affiliation. They you were surprised to find themselves together. And when they were taught about trauma, what is trauma, the consequences and the symptoms of trauma. On the second day, they had a chance to share their stories about their experiences during the past elections. And then they started to cry together. Through the crying together, those people started to understand that they are just one person. They can cry. They have the same emotions, the same feelings. It was through the trauma healing workshops that they understood that they need to work together for violence prevention in their different communities.
0: I think that people in the United States make the assumption that if you have some kind of trauma, the best way to deal with it is you with one person, with a therapist working with you. But in fact, your experience in Africa with the trauma healing workshops is that by doing that with a group of people, that in fact, you do healing yourself and the community heals together. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Here in the U.S., we are using one person to one person. It is true that even in Burundi, sometimes someone can go to see a psychologist one-to-one, but our approach that has been very effective in Burundi is people to be together as a community. The approach that we are using is called the healing and building our communities. We bring 20 people together from different backgrounds between the 20 and the 25, they attend a three day trauma healing workshop. As I said on the first day, we explain to them what is trauma, the symptoms, the causes, the consequences. And also we explain to them what we call Joharis window, a window made of four parts. The first part, which is called open the part, the things that I know about myself and that others people know. This is the open the part. The second part is the things I do I know about myself, but that others don't know. This is the secret part of my life. The third part is the things I don't know about myself, but others know. This is the blind part of myself. And the fourth part is the things that I don't know about myself and that others don't know. This is the mysterious part of my life and then on the second day from the Johari's window the things I know about myself and others don't know the secret part it is on the second day that participants start to share about their secret part and this is when people can share even starting these painful stories when people can understand that they are not alone even though I'm coming from this particular ethnic group, I have faced violence, but I have heard that another person from a different ethnic group has also experienced violence, then it is a way to bring them together to understand that they are not alone. Other people have faced the same problems or the same kind of violence. Then they understand that they need to work together, they are one person.
0: I've also shared with past guests on Northern Spirit Radio for our Spirit in Action program, the work of Cecile Romana, who you know, who works in Rwanda, and several other people who've been part of the healing, rebuilding our communities, the HIROC process, the trauma healing. I think it's hard for people in the United States to understand this, in part because we're so used to doing therapy in private. How important, how healing, how powerful it is to do it with a safe group. Did you go through trauma healing yourself? I mean, your father was killed. There was killing happening all around you. Did you go through trauma healing?
1: Yes. I attended the training of trainers in trauma healing. It lasts for three weeks. I was there in Kigali to attend a trauma healing workshop. It was at the beginning of 2015. So it was since that time that I was able to share about what happened to me since my childhood and even during the elections in Burundi. So to be able to share my story has helped me to recover from my my past wounds. Before that trauma healing workshop, I could not speak about it. It was as if it was a secret. I don't have to reveal it. But today, even though I can have uh, some emotions when I remember how the situation was looking like, I feel that I have made a big step for my trauma recovery because I was able to tell it. Uh, because during the trauma healing workshops on the third day, we do what we call trust walk. When two people have to walk, you play the role of a blind people. One person play a role of a blind people and you have the one person who is not blind who is going to guide you to lead you until you reach your destination and it was this on the 3rd day that we were trained that for someone to recover from trauma he needs to find someone he trusts to share his story to for the and this is the first step to recover from your trauma yeah, I have attended. It was uh, David Zaremka was still there. I don't know if you know about David Zaremka.
0: Oh, I've met and I've interviewed David Zaremka, actually, and his daughter also. So, yes, and, and I was sorry of his passing. I mean, I know he died during the COVID epidemic. Mm-hmm. Again, folks, we're speaking with Parfet mm-hmm. Tahuba. She's from Burundi where, amongst other things, she works as woman rights advocate. She's also a Quaker minister in Burundi. And I'll have to talk to you a bit about what that means, because most Quakers, how they organize in Burundi, are different than the Quakers that I work with here in the United States. And the other thing, you've referred to Quaker Peace Network Burundi, you've referred to Nonviolent Peace Force, Some organizations are Quaker, like Quaker Peace Network, but Nonviolent Peace Force is not Quaker. And your training, the early response team that you put together, they're very deliberately not simply Quaker. In fact, you get peace activists throughout the country, throughout all of the political parties and of all genders, all men and women. And so how important a part do the Quakers play? In your peace force, your unarmed civilian protection, what percentage of the people are actually Quaker? The training came from Quakers or some Quakers in this. So what part do the Quaker, the religion, the place where you're a minister in a Quaker church, how important is that in making this possible?
1: Quakers have played a great role to make it happen because uh, I myself am a pastor from the Evangelical French Church. I am a Quaker who is a pastor, and I was the first to benefit from the unarmed civilian protection training, and I found that as a peace actor, I need that more people can be trained, and those people who were trained on unarmed civilian protection, were not, uh, all of them were not Quakers, Although they were identified by uh, Quaker organizations in Burundi, they were coming from different backgrounds. I cannot say the exact percentage of those who are coming from the evangelical church, but they were identified by Quaker organizations. And those Quaker organizations are coming from the Quaker church in Burundi. The Quaker church is the mother of those Quaker organizations. But those people who were trained, they were coming from Protestants, from Catholics, from Muslims, because as Quakers, we believe that peace is a team effort, and peace is for everyone regardless his religious background.
0: The Burundian culture, the native African culture, different roles for women and men. You talked, Parfait, about how when you were a young girl, because you were a girl, you had to take care of your little siblings, your little brother and sister. All of us grow up with some sense of roles because of our gender, but you're specifically Quaker. And Quakers have a long history of equality of men and women. More than 350 years ago, Quakers believed men and women were equal. And that's radical in Europe at that time. It's still radical in some places in the world. And in Burundi, it's probably not easy to be a woman leader of a country where men are still considered to have most of the power how unusual is your situation? You are one of the pastors of a Quaker church with 2,500 members. That's a very big church from my point of view. That's a lot of people who have to accept that a woman is their leader. <laughs> <laughs> is that hard?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for the question. You know, I am very female pastor, but I told you that gender-based violence is also present in our churches. For instance, now we have free women who are pastors among more than 100 men who are pastors. Yeah, for me, the main reason I responded to this call was to break the gender barrier. And I'm glad to be a, a female pastor because most of the time women are the ones who want to talk to pastors. I feel that I'm in my right place. But one of my favorite parts as a pastor is to do premarital counseling. Because I don't want more women to suffer in their homes and more children to suffer in their families because of gender-based violence. So, it is not easy. We are in a, a patriarchal culture system. It is not easy. But I believe that change is a process. It is not easy because I remember... I was sharing with other fellow pastors who are male about how I empower women economically as a way to prevent gender-based violence. And I remember one male pastor who told me one day, Pastor, I think you have lost your pastoral call And I asked him why. And his response was, if you are empowering women economically, they will no longer submit to their husbands. So this is a kind of uh, opposition. It seems that even those pastors who are men, they feel that women, in order to submit, they need to stay poor, they need to stay dependent on their husband economically. Uh, So if you are a woman, to stand... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> A woman who is supposed to preach in the church that the women must submit to their husband, they don't understand. They think that you are breaking the law, you are breaking the biblical truth, but it is not, yeah. People uh, take advantage of the culture in order to interpret, it to, to to do wrong interpretation of the Bible so that they can keep on overruling, overdominating, that they can continue to dominate over women. So, I still face some challenges because of our culture and our religious belief, but it is my commitment. I have that passion to stand, to network, to give all what I have so that we can prevent the issue of gender-based violence. So, This is also another challenge, the equity to put in place the conditions so that women can uh, benefit their rights at the same level as men. Yeah, because sometimes you say about we speak about equality and women we have 30% of women in the parliament or in the, the opposition but as long as they don't think about putting in place the conditions the equity so that we can be free, the same percentage as men mm. it is hard. <laughs> I'm sorry I am yeah. talking a lot but it is because sometimes it is hard when you are watching in a
0: patriarchal system. Sure. Well, and you're being a trailblazer, a person who is leading the way to learn how you can have equity in Burundi. How can women function in this situation? And it was an interesting thing you mentioned. I think 30% of your Congress nationally is women. Yeah. But... If they're not allowed to be at meetings when the men are there, that kind of makes it hard to have good leadership by women.
1: Yes, even though if those are in the parliament, if they are running night business meetings, we cannot expect women to feel safe when they are attending those meetings. They are not even going to listen carefully what is being. And most of the time in our African context, big decisions are taken during (laughs) night meetings. So I think that we are still doing advocacy when we are organizing public events during the 16 Days Campaign against gender-based violence. We denounce what is being done, which is not supporting the women's rights. Also, the women's economic empowerment is another way to bring a woman so that she can also have some way to stand. <laughs> because if, uh, if the woman is dependent economically, We cannot expect that one day she will benefit from her rights at the same level as men. If women are empowered economically, the issue of gender-based violence will decrease. So, empowering women economically is also one way to bring the equity, to put in place the conditions of women to benefit their rights at the same level as men. Today, we still have the law of inheritance, which is not also been yet signed in in our country. But this also, when it is signed, it will be also the condition put in place for a woman to benefit from her rights, to benefit her rights at the same level as men. So... We still have a lot to do, but if we look back from how far we came from, we can say that there is a step which has already been achieved because even today I'm here in the U.S. I spend here five weeks, and in the past in Burundi, a woman could not have a passport. If the husband doesn't sign that the wife is allowed to have a passport, she could not have a passport. So, if I look back from how far I came from, there is hope.
0: I think there's hope because there's Kahuba yeah, yeah. <laughs> working so hard for this and leading other people in this direction. I think you're making a big difference for Burundi.
1: Perfect.
0: I think the world is so lucky to have you, so fortunate to have you. Your energy, your smile, your intellect, and your love that you are giving to the community all make such a big difference. And we're so fortunate to have you here today for Spirit and Action. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Parfait Nutuhuba. She's many things. Uh, she's a mother, yes. She's also a pastor of a 2,500-member Quaker church in Burundi. She's Quaker rights advocate, a peacemaker, and we're so fortunate to have her here visiting currently in Madison, Wisconsin, heading back soon to Burundi. And please take my greetings from Wisconsin to the Quakers in Burundi and the other people there. And thank you so much for your work, Parfait.
1: Thank you for this privilege to let me talk and also to learn from you because for your questions, I also have uh, some inspiration, new inspiration how I can keep my work up. Thank you very much for this great opportunity.
0: It's so great to meet you, to have time with you. Remember, folks, by the way, that I have links to friendspeaceteams.org. You'll find under there, Burundi, you'll find the kind of folks who are doing this work in Burundi. There's also the fwaburundi.com. Both those links are on northernspiritradio.org. Follow up on Parfet's work, support it please, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along. And our lives will feel the echo of our